Pod here. Welcome to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If this is your first time joining us, you're very welcome. I am an author, lecturer, and leadership advisor to executive teams, C-suite leaders, and multinational organizations all over the world. I've been fascinated with the ideas and practices that underpin impactful and effective leadership for over 25 years. And this podcast is dedicated to understanding those ideas and putting them into practice. Before we start with today's episode, can I ask you a favor? Can you jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating on this podcast? Because that's what drives attention to the podcast for people who don't know we exist. So please share this podcast, please write a review, please leave a rating, and on we go. Today, I'm joined by Steve Weston. Steve currently is the CEO and co-founder of Volt Bank, one of the emerging neobanks in digital banking in the Australian sector and one of the fastest growing and most technologically innovative in the world. And that is according to Setai Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, nonetheless. But Steve grew up a long way from technology like this. Steve grew up in the tropics in North Queensland, joined banking at age 13 in order to get out of the heat, and has had an extraordinary career within Australia, within Barclays in the UK, and had come back to Australia and has set up this new venture. This is a story of what customer centricity really means in terms of getting close to the customer to find out not just what they want, but what do they truly need. We talk about that in detail. Steve shares his philosophy on openness and transparency and why it can be often counterintuitive for risk management or risk-averse industries. He also shares his philosophy and learning and the notion of having a team of mentors in any organization, particularly for the most senior executives. Again, this can be counterintuitive to what really happens. And finally, he shares his idea of learning and how learning in an ongoing basis is the only way to stay innovative. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. But you'll never surrender. When you send out your senior team and they're sitting beside staff members that are dealing with problems every day, they'll give you your answers on innovation. You know, you don't need to have a PhD in innovation. What you need to have a PhD is in ears bigger than your mouth. And so it can be done. So the, the vault seniors, you're talking to customers regularly, talking to business partners. And so you don't need to necessarily have a crystal ball thinking of what is the next thing in banking. You do a bit of research, you do all your customer testing and the like, but a whole lot of it's about listening. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Steve, welcome to Leadership Diet. Great to see you again. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As I said in my introduction, you're someone who's worked in two of the top four banks in Australia. You've worked in one of the largest banks in the UK, and you've come back to Australia, maybe not planning to, but come back as an entrepreneur and set up one of our fastest growing neobanks. So really looking forward to hearing the story and maybe even not some of the glamour points, maybe, maybe some of the, the real points along the way. But before we jump into all of that, from memory, your starting point in banking was at age 13, and it wasn't necessarily for career reasons. Is that, is that right? It is right. It was the first moment of serendipity in my career, actually. I uh, wasn't much of a student, and the teachers rightly would have described me as a, as a nuisance. And at the age of 13 or 14, I was 13 in my case, all students had to do a week's work experience. 
and the school would give each student this laundry list of potential occupations that you could do your week's work experience in. And you had a first and a second choice. My second choice was banking. And it wasn't because I had aspirations at 13 years of age of becoming a banker, but the little town I grew up in, North Queensland, Bowen, in the tropics is hot. And I knew that banks were air conditioned. <laughs> so I was clever, but my level of aspirations to join a bank was all about the air conditioning. And uh, I did do that week's work experience and I enjoyed it. And, and you know, Pod, that was the beginning of something because it was the first time that I could recall getting positive feedback from someone in authority. And I still have the letter that the assistant manager of the Commonwealth Bank in Bowen wrote for me to give back to the school and said something like, Steve worked hard and we'd welcome him undertaking an entrance selection exam, which was how you got jobs in banks in the you know mid-1980s. And one day at, at high school, I, I got a message to phone the Commonwealth Bank and they offered me a job and at 15... I left school not too long after that, left home and embarked on a banking career. So it was a moment of serendipity that got me into banking as opposed to any deliberate desire. But nonetheless, you, I suppose, cunningness and then real life wisdom from mowing lawns from age 13 or 11, whatever it was you were were doing that work, taught you to get indoors as quick as you can during the summer season. Well, I still, and my father has just had a malignant melanoma removed from his head. I'm every six months getting the, you know, the pre-nasties, frozen off and the like. I have the wrong skin tone for the tropics. I was always destined to work indoors. My father and brothers are builders and glaziers, and, and I was the oldest of, of uh, three boys. They could hammer nails fluently as kids. My nail would bend and break and I'd break things and fall over. I was always destined to work uh, indoors in some form. That early move into banking proved to be, as you said, very powerful for you because you were invited back at 15. And I remember you telling me once you weren't doing well at school in your early years, but one of your mentors in your early part of your career encouraged you to go back to school almost against your will. And and am I right in remembering they almost forced you to sign the, the application form, which got you back into study? They did, and the guy who did it, his name is Danny Thoughts, and become a lifelong friend of mine, sadly passed away, but uh, was very close and, and probably never realised the impact that he had on my career. He grabbed me, maybe I'd been working 12 months at this stage, and said, hey, young fella, I think you've got some potential for this banking game, but because you've left school at such a young age, not having any academic qualification may make it more difficult for you to fulfil your potential. And I, I nodded, yes, that's good. And he went away and filled out a college correspondence application for an associate diploma in, in banking. And it was a very difficult moment for me because I hadn't done all that well at school, but in the short time I was in banking, I felt I was going okay. And, and I said, Danny, I'm not going to pass these exams and it'll be embarrassing and it'll be a backward step. And he said, don't worry, you'll be fine. And he, he got me to sign the form and he sent it off. And, and I remember Pod going in to do the first exam of, of this associate diploma. And because it was correspondence, you had to be supervised to do your exam at the same high school that I, I wasn't so fond of. And I almost backed out of going into the exam room. didn't know how I would go. And, and that first mark was either a pass or, or, or a credit in those days, but it set me off then saying, well, maybe I wasn't as lacking in intelligence as what maybe my school marks would have you believe and went through 13 years worth of, of study, always by correspondence. I was in different places that weren't universities, uh, finished off with an MBA and, 
most of the marks that I got from the, you know the uh, the initial year or so were distinctions or high distinctions, and that's something that has stayed with me. Not only did it build my own confidence, but the years that I have been a leader, I've always looked out for those that just through circumstance, just through where they were raised or the environment that they were in, you know, didn't get the opportunity to fulfil that potential. And, I, and I've had some examples that, you know, have been the most satisfying things that you know, I've done in my career. People have gone on and done really special things that had they not been given the opportunity, the encouragement and let their confidence do the, the rest after a period. So that's something I hold close to me. And again, I was very lucky that Danny got me kicked off and, it's kind of for me, if I can repay the opportunity that I had for others, and uh, one day when I hang up the keys, I'll be very happy indeed. It's a great story, and, and I think you're up here, right? There's many, many leaders I've met over the years who, had it not been for one person who spotted something, didn't maybe not even know what they were spotting, but they spotted something, gave that person an opportunity, and the rest is history. I think it takes a compassionate leader to keep looking for that in other people, but nonetheless, that is often the breeding ground for, for future leaders. And Potter, I think it's it's interesting to see what happens to the individual. So why is it that the same flesh and blood that may not have thrived in one environment can do in another? What actually happens to them? Why is it? Is it they work harder and study harder? And, you know, maybe that's a part of it. In my case, it was about self-belief and self-confidence. So the first bit was embarrassment and we're going to look foolish here. And then when I got one reasonable mark, it was, well, maybe not. And then suddenly you lift your own bar year by year to to work harder and and do a little better. You wake up one day saying, what was I worried about all those years ago? But it is a process. It kind of doesn't just happen overnight, but it's it's interesting and I've seen it play out time and time again. I agree with you. I remember in my own career many years ago, I was working in a consulting firm and I wanted to set up my own business. I wrote my resignation letter and I brought into my boss, Monica, and said, here's my letter. I'm resigning. I'm you know, giving you three or four months notice. And she quite smartly said, oh, so talk me through your business ideas and what are you going to be doing? And she quietly re- um, unveiled in me that I hadn't thought through enough. And she goes, look, how about I put your resignation letter into my drawer for just for a few weeks? Here's a project that I think you should go on that'll build up your skill sets. Well, guess what? Three years later, I was still running that project, but I had massive experience at the end of it. And and then I was ready to go. <laughs> and she often reminds me that she still has that resignation letter in her drawer somewhere. What a great story. I love it. Isn't it amazing how two people, you know, when you do well and you kick on like you did, others get satisfaction in your success as well, just playing whatever that part may be. And even thinking back to the Olympics the other day, you know, every one of those athletes have family, they have schoolmates, school teachers, neighbours, community members who all felt part of that success. And it's the same in professional and career-wise, and we forget that sometimes. Yep, for sure. Well, you also did well after that first exam because you kept going and you ended up having a career in Combank, in St. George Bank, and then into Nostra Australia Bank. Am I right remembering one of them was through an acquisition? Like, I can't remember where the career path moved because of an acquisition. Yeah, so I had spent 12 years with Commonwealth Bank and then spent a few years at St. George Bank setting up a business banking unit for them in a, in a region just north of, of Sydney. And I then end up going and spending a few years working for one of my customers, my clients at St. George Bank. And it was, if I wanted to describe it quickly, corporate doctor and they had a number of businesses and those that weren't running well, I would go in and work out what needed to be done to get them back on their on their feet, sold one of those food manufacturing business to Kellogg's and moved across and run it for a period. And St. George Bank phoned back up and offered me a job that was probably two levels higher than I thought that I would ever 
be able to achieve. And that was, again, a, a, another bit of serendipity. I stayed there for five years running their mortgage lending business and, and bits and pieces run Queensland for a period. A lot of learnings there. I was a young guy, early 30s, felt like a complete imposter, walked in at the most unfortunate time in the business units, which were the largest in St. George Bank, were not performing well. And of course, all the spotlight was on the person running those businesses, and that was me. So I ended up learning a whole lot about mortgages and about myself and about people. And in those few years, much of the mortgage innovation in Australia that is kind of viewed with envy around the rest of the world, it was done in those uh, years. So some of those people that, that were part of the team work for Vault now. So it's amazing, you know, 21 years later. Mid-2000s, I go and join a company called Challenger Financial Services, a listed financial services company today. And their largest shareholder were the Packer family very ambitious to do quite well and wanted to make a go of the mortgage business. So we acquired a white-labeled mortgage funding business and three of the largest mortgage broking businesses in Australia announced the purchase of these three businesses all at the same time. It was kind of quite disruptive to the Australian market. And we quickly became the fifth biggest lender, mortgage lender in Australia behind the four major banks. And it was going really, really well, Pob. And then the global financial crisis hit in 2008-9. And we were accessing our funding for this mortgage business, not through deposits like banks do, but through the wholesale markets, uh, these large investors from Australia and overseas. And all of them wanted their money back at, at, at this time. So suddenly we had a you know, great distribution, 4,000 mortgage brokers, but we had no ability to service that. To provide them to them. We sold that business to National Australia Bank in the back end of 2009 and I moved across with the acquisition. If I go back to that time of innovation, always technical aspects to product and service innovation that are unique to that industry, but there's always patterns to innovation, particularly thinking and people mobilization, etc. When you think about your current role as Volt co-founder, and we'll come to Volt in a few minutes, what did you learn from that time in terms of innovation and mobilizing people to do things differently that you brought into your current business? was a word you said then, which is the greatest learning to people. It, you know, we can have all the technology innovation in the world and all the data analytics. Everything comes back to people, particularly your own team and making sure that, you you know, you have really talented people on the bus and all behaving in the right way and, and that will never happen consistently. But the more often that people can march in the right direction and really understand what it is that you're building a business for comes back uh, to people. And in that particular case, there were mortgage customers at the end of the day and, and there were a group of intermediaries who were mortgage brokers. And you need to understand that you actually had two sets of customers. Yeah. One set of customers were mortgage brokers. You needed to understand what would make their life easier and make them look good in front of their customers being the end borrower. But we also had to design products and processes that benefited the end customer as well. But it all come back to the people and it comes back to the people today and you know whether it be your shareholders whether it be regulators whether it be a participant in the community and of course your staff and, and customers as well so even though we are vault bankers at the cutting edge of technology innovation in world banking it still comes back to the people at the end of the day i could be really cynical here and say that sounds like a very cliche type answer but i think i know you enough to know that's not a cliche from you so can, can you double down a bit further and, and and when you think and if you are watching yourself lead those conversations with those people what are you saying and doing that might be different to other people 
If I go back to my previous banking role before Vault, it's not a new company. It was Barclays Bank, one of the oldest banks in the world, 320 plus years old, older than the United States of America, as we used to, uh, to say. And some of its processes, when I joined, I run a big chunk of a retail bank and some of the processes felt like they were 320 <laughs> years old. So I had a management team, and uh, an extended leadership team, 25 people. They all had to, initially we started with one day a month and then it was one day every couple of months, had to get out of the ivory tower in London and had to go and work in the bank branches and operations centre. They had to uh, listen and take telephone calls They had to uh, speak to customers who had customer complaints. And this is what I talk about, the people. So so what happens here, you start with, and if I pick a couple of roles, the head of HR, the head of marketing, the the head of technology, typically would never have served a customer in their life. So it was quite daunting, particularly if customers had had a complaint. And now you had to say, look, I'm the head of technology for Barclays Mortgages. I want to know what's happened. It's like, uh, what do we do now? If you do that consistently enough, you're never going to make a head of technology like a mortgage guru that understands how it all works, but they'll understand what it means for staff and and customers. And so then when you're making future decisions, you're just so much closer to the end customer. And it almost would bring tears to my eyes at times when we were working out where we spent our investment dollars and there was always a, a lot of negotiations there, you would have maybe the head of HR saying, when I was up in Manchester and I was on the collections where people were late with payments on the phone line, will that investment spend fix the issue that you know was problematic for the customers or the staff? Now, at that stage, you almost want to hallelujah, Lord. So you are bringing people, the decision makers, closer to the end customers than banks um, ever, ever do. But it required a lot of discipline, a lot of pushback from the uh, staff. And your innovation happens from there. When you send out your senior team and they're sitting beside the staff members that are dealing with problems every day, they'll give you your answers on innovation. You know, you don't need to have a PhD in innovation. What you need to have a PhD in is ears bigger than your mouth. And, and so it can be done. So the Vault seniors, you know, will be talking to customers regularly, talking to business partners. And so you don't need to necessarily, you know, have a crystal ball thinking of, you know, what is the next thing in banking. You do a bit of research, you do all your customer testing and the like, but a whole lot of it's about listening. Sounds like you were uh, living and breathing human-centered design long before anyone ever called it that. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I thought about that in past years, if it, it was. But if I think about the skills that, you know, those 25 have now taken on, to others and the respect that you got from your team, you know, we had 3,000 people just in one in the mortgage business alone and probably hadn't been managed all that well, felt, you know, a bit orphaned in some ways. It took a long time to rebuild trust with them. You know, we made many mistakes on our way to getting the businesses turned around and they went from some of the most disengaged teams to the most engaged in, in Barclays. In fact, after I come back to Australia, I did a trip to UK and my former team asked, would I come up to uh, Leeds in Northern England and spend a day with them? They wanted to show me what they had done after I left. And after a lot of work of these senior teams going in and we're here to help you, the progress wasn't as quick as I, I would have hoped. So one day I had a town hall, as they called it in the UK, and we probably had three or 400 of the team in a room. And I apologised that we weren't able to fix a number of these broken processes as quickly as I thought we would and as quickly as everyone everyone wanted. But it wasn't from lack of effort. And what it was, the more 
issues that we would find and take away back to the ivory tower and resolve, there'd be another lot coming through. And some of them needed to be fixed locally with the teams. They, they knew what they had to do, but they didn't have the tools or the empowerment. So uh, in this town hall, I said, I'm handing the keys to resolve this over to you guys because I know you can do it. I'll give you the support of the head of compliance in their team, the head of technology, but you actually know what the problems are and the like. So tell us what you want to do. And they said, this executive room that you have, the office in the middle of the three floors, we'd like to use that as our project room. So they knocked all the, 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 the doors and I had whiteboards and they undertook and started a program called Bugs to Butterflies, Bugs Finding Problems, and then they went and, and resolved them. When I went back a year after returning to Australia, the amount of work that they had done was incredible. And when I first arrived there, I think there was probably 800 staff in in Leeds. When I would walk the floors and talk to people, they were embarrassed. They weren't happy. I could never make eye contact. And that trip I went back, I could see in my peripheral vision so many of my former team saying, you know, Westy, as they call me, come over, you want to have a look at what we've done. And not only was that a very proud moment, it's, it's a real learning. You know, how do you kind of hand the keys to your team? How do you empower them but give them the support? Because the answers invariably are there. They don't come from, you know, 12 people or 25 people sitting in this room and being really well intended. They have an important role to play. But quite often, you know, go and talk to your customers, your brokers, your business partners and your staff and you'll get a pretty good start of what you need to do. Some extraordinary ideas you have just there. And if I could double back to one of them, I've I've seen and heard many, many exec teams at an offsite, commit to each other. We need to go spend more time with the customer or the customer facing offices and invariably they do it once. But what, what I've heard you say is you made a commitment that's done every single month by all the members of the exec team. That's a big commitment. Did you have to push that to happen? So, so and I don't say this with any pride, but there were tears from senior executives saying you don't know how difficult this is to me. Particularly, you know, one of the examples were customers that were, you know, may have already been quite irate with problems. One of my senior executives said, I don't even have a mortgage myself. So you're now asking me to phone customers that have got a problem and, you know, I'm such a novice. It's just throwing fuel on the fire. And in that case, I said, all right, well, we'll get you to talk to customers within 48 hours of their problem being resolved and ask them what was, you know, the problem in terms of how was it resolved? Did we, were we uh, respectful? Did we get back to them in time? Were people listening to them and those sorts of things? So, kind of got there, but it was it was really difficult. And it also took a while for the teams, the call centres and the operations centres and the branches to think that this was something that would be sustained because they had, you know, for years had people coming in after help from the head office yep. away and they would move on and, you know, things would improve. But we probably had, Pog, and we made this public to, you know, the 3,000 team in the mortgage area here's what the KPIs were for the business. And there might have been 10 of them. And our commitment to our wider teams, if we had nine of those KPIs all met, but one wasn't, and that one was to fix a lot of these issues, then the overall performance would have been a failure. And again, people were a little sceptical. Yeah, those things sound good. They sound a bit novel. We'll see over time. But when the team kept fronting up and kept fronting up and things got better and then one day when the keys were handed to the team, I mean, they were off to the, uh, the races at work. But 
it takes a lot of effort, particularly taking people out of their jobs and, you know, travelling three hours on a train trip, which a lot of those executives had to do. And, and they're also the most highly paid people in your business. Highly paid. And, and, yeah. and you ask them now the return on investment that we got out of that process. And I doubt that we would have a uh, anyone that wasn't incredibly positive about it. And, you know, we took something similar to other parts of Barclays in, in different parts of the world. And and also we're a showcase across Barclays. You know, here's one business unit that could kind of do what we may have thought wasn't possible. So how can we take learnings to other parts of the organisation? ask you to, to try and think back and, and maybe you won't be able to, but I'm keen to understand here you are in your first international role from Australia. You didn't come up through banking royalty. You, you, you came up through the through their branches and here you are in arguably one of the most famous banks in the world asking very successful and indeed probably highly paid execs to go up to Leeds once a month. That takes a lot of courage for someone to go, oh, you know, I stand by my convictions and here's, here's what we're going to do as my leadership team. Were there moments for you along the way where your convictions were being threatened or you felt doubt along what you wanted them to do? Yeah. When you're dealing with such senior people and you're taking such a kind of differentiated approach to others, people were watching, you know, right across the organisation as an experiment, I guess, and so, well, let's see with this uh, Aussie with some pretty strong views how this is going to work. You know, fortunately, it worked extremely well and we've then become an exemplar business for others. But there was no doubt, not being nasty, but there were sceptical people going, oh, yeah, this will crash and burn. I wonder how long it will take. There was no doubt, Bob, that was happening. I'm a pretty positive guy. I like to be told that things are impossible. In fact, tell the team twice, you know, people think that this is impossible. Okay, now let's go out and show them that it's not. And, again, the team's confidence um, builds. And, you know, I then – went and worked and did mentoring for other areas of bank, investment banking. You know, I was in the retail side and retail investment banking. They deal in the billions of dollars of retail uh, customers and suddenly you've got a, a hillbilly from Australia, you know, telling us how we should run the investment bank. Well, that was interesting, but we had, again, some equally really, really positive results proving that that approach that I, that I had wasn't just something that would work in a, in a business where you had a lot of customer interaction. It worked when you were dealing with some of the biggest companies in the world and financing them. They also had issues. And again, the team knew what needed to be done to make a life better for their customers and for the staff. Again, I said, well, so what are the things that could make a difference and that you would consider impossible? The team, the 20 that we had in the mentoring team, were like, you're wasting your time. And so I went and talked to my peers, the head of investment banking and the head of credit, and said, this to me from an outsider looks like it. it's common sense. The team is telling me not to waste time even trying to make these improvements. And I said, I need your support. And they said, there's you know, pushing on an open door. And we did the impossible there. And I said, so team, what's the next thing that's impossible? And you know what? You're all managing directors. And so if it's not you that is going to fix these impossible things, then you know, we're in a hell of a bad state because our team in the more junior roles and this team are not going to be able to. So again, it's that building self-belief and a lot of discipline and uh, it, it is hard work. It's not something that just happens by itself. I also know you, you take the same view to other stakeholders such as regulators and that partnership type of view has served you well, both in the UK and obviously you, you, you've set up another bank down here. 
Am I right in remembering you got some really positive feedback from the regulator not long after you joined Barclays, which was unusual to get and maybe even embarrassing at the time? That was a funny story. So your listeners in Australia will be familiar with the Royal Commission and all of the problems that were made public that the banks and financial services companies had. In the UK, it was like that, but even to a greater extent, if you can believe it, in Barclays, because the bank was just so big, uh, yeah, anything that was bad news, we seem to be involved in one way. And each year, one of the regulators will do reviews, thematic reviews on different aspects of, of banks' performance. And the bank would get like a, a report card that you would get at, at school, I guess. You know, we were always underperforming at Barclays. When I first arrived, one of the thematic reviews was done on one of the parts of my business and my manager, who still runs the big chunk of Barclays uh, today, he and I got called down to the regulator for our feedback session. Is feedback a euphemism for a scolding? Well, and it was nerve-wracking. And, and the backstory was I was pretty direct with the regulators. So typically banks had been told, don't say much to the regulators. Tell them the minimum that you need to because they're not your friend, but they're, they're the policemen and, and they'll make life difficult for you. That approach to me clearly hadn't worked. We needed to be more open. The regulators didn't expect that banks would be perfect, but they wanted you to be transparent when you identified issues, to put your hand up, investigate them and fix things up rather than them being found several years later and it being a bigger problem than it needed to be. So I would also, though, have some pretty strong discussions with the regulators where I didn't agree with their point of view. And most times they were right. But a senior person in the compliance world, a very senior person at Barclays, said, Steve, if you keep your approach with the regulators like it is now, you may not see our probation. Now, he said it with a smile on his face. But there's there a warning there. <laughs> he was serious. So we, we ended up at Christmas Eve, my boss and I, with uh, one of the regulators, and the feedback session started with, before we get into the nitty-gritty, we just like to comment on the way that Steve and his team engaged with us. And my boss looked at me and it was like, I bloody knew this bad news from the start. And they said, no, it is an approach that uh, right across the regulator, they are encouraging with other banks. And that is about uh, being open. If you find an issue, you know, don't wait 12 months until you think you've discovered where it really is a problem. Let them know what you're doing about it. So that also helped for an Aussie, I think, with a very different approach to many of my colleagues in Barclays, people watching, will this approach work? So we did a lot of work on, on digitising businesses and taking them from being laggards to global leaders to have this experiment where the senior team got closer to the customers and, and what that meant as a result, but also in the open way that we dealt with the, uh, the regulators. It was like, okay, that approach is clearly working. How can we take those positives and use them in other parts of the organisation? Well, you, you did. You took those positives and you've come back to Australia. And in the last, I think it's four years, you set up a, what's called a neobank. For the listeners who may not be familiar with that phrase, do you want to explain what it is and, and, and why you chose to do this? Yeah, so a neobank pod is kind of a general term, neo-BNEU, but it generally refers to challenger banks. And in many parts of the world, it also refers to banks that are digital but don't have branches where you do your banking over a smartphone. And, and that certainly is the case with, with Vault Bank. But we also have a different approach to customers and the way that we engage and, and help them, but also where customers, um, how they open their accounts with, with Vault is very different. So from a customer perspective, when we were starting Vault, really researched what would customers want 
and, and almost more importantly, need, because sometimes there is a difference. Their customers don't really know the, the help that they need. And that's what we've gone and, and, and built. So how can we help customers live better financial lives? And the second part of the equation is what would the future business models of banking look like? Because largely they hadn't changed in 600 years. You would go to a physical location and open an account. We've become a bit more digital. But clearly in almost all industries of the world, the notion of platforms were becoming ubiquitous. So a company that had a particular offering for its customers would look to do more. That really hadn't taken off in banking, but it was going to. So in Vault Bank's case, most of our customers won't go on to the Vault app or the Vault website and open an account, which, which they can. Most of the customers will come from companies that already have relationships with their customers and they want to do more with them. And quite often that will involve offering a banking product through the technology or the app of, of, of the partner. And it will be removing payment friction. It may be that with customers' consent, the corporate wants to know more about what the customers are doing with their lives so they can tailor their offerings, do more with them and the like. Now, from a corporate perspective, you can't offer bank accounts unless you are a bank and that's almost impossible for most corporates uh, to achieve a banking licence. So you need to partner with a bank. The bank then needs to build the technology to enable customers to open bank accounts in you know, retailers or airlines or telcos sites, and that's really difficult for a bank to do. And also it's, it takes a very different mindset from a bank who is so used to owning the customer relationship and cross-selling other products. Suddenly in Vault's case, we need to say the customer experience is owned not by Vault, but by the partner, by the retailer, by the mortgage broker and the like. All we do is we provide access to bank accounts, to the payment systems and those sorts of things. And it's a less contested part of the market and clearly it's growing. So in the US, you can get bank accounts with Google and Apple and, and Walmart. And in Australia, we're going down that path. There's quite a lot of demand, but it's something that banks in Australia haven't been able to do. One of them, Westpac, has started off down this, this path and it is challenging to do. So when we were starting with a clean sheet of paper, it was looking at two things. What would customers want and need in the future? And let's go and build that. And two, how would customers engage with banks in the future? Where are the areas that are less contested in Australian and global banking where a new digital bank like Vault could outperform? And don't take the majors on every street corner. Play to the areas where you can outcompete, and that's what we've done. From an innovation perspective, you've only been in existence for you know less than five years. And as I understand it, we've been clearly the top tech startups of 2021. Satya Nadella from Microsoft has lauded you for being a very innovative organization and number one of the leaders in reimagining businesses to the degree that they want to partner with you and are partnering with you. That talks a lot about the innovation that's occurred so quickly. Can you talk to us about that? Like, What, what is the mindset and the activities you're undertaking to allow you to engage with that level of innovation so fast? Yeah, so what we are doing, Pod, is very, very innovative. The thinking is certainly there globally. People are talking about, in some degree, doing some of what Vault has done and, and will continue to do. But starting with a clean sheet of paper, 
without the constraints of, of legacy technology that holds everything down, without the constraints of legacy thinking of, of the senior executives of incumbent banks, we can do that. So it is quite an amazing story. So here you have some of the uh, the leaders of the biggest technology firms in the world, Microsoft or Mark Benioff at, at Salesforce. You know, I genuinely could send Mark a text and did talk to him or his you know, co-CEO of the business. And, you know, there are a lot of startup business. What they have said, hey, look, we really like what you are doing and we can see how this disruptive this will be. Whilst they, they uh, deal with the biggest banks and the biggest companies in the world, quite often the innovation comes from different areas. So they are saying we are happy to support you, help you out with thinking, with resources that you wouldn't be able to afford yourself. But knowing one day that there will be a payback, you know, when Vault potentially could take its, its technology globally and they would want to be participants. So the thinking comes from a variety of sources, but having both large and, you know, small companies to help with that innovation is important. From a smaller company perspective, the, the leader in Australian open banking is a company called Frollo. And we started at about, about the same time. And Frollo were knocking on all the doors of the banks to say, look, we're building something, we'd like to help you with it. And they weren't getting too many people willing to chat at least. So we become their, their first customer. And, and uh, I don't know how many banks and the major banks that they deal with, but just being able to say, hey, look, we're working in conjunction with Vault, this disruptive play. Oh, suddenly we're interested, at least for a sticky week, and then seeing what Vault has done. So we, we developed a small incubator. And we had one of our three levels at, at North Sydney where we had a number of our fintech partners and Frollo was one of those until October last year. And, and uh, they sold to a larger company, a very good outcome, I think, for their shareholders and are now kind of going on. So one of the added benefits of a digital disruptive like Vol, it's not just to give better customer experiences and to bring competition to the incumbent banks, but it's been able to give oxygen to you know, some of these really smart, impressive fintechs that were unable to do it by knocking on the doors of the big guys. And, and that's very satisfying, I have to tell you. Well, that goes back to your mentoring days, doesn't it, in terms of the more people you can mentor, the wider the ecosystem. From, from a leadership perspective, can you talk us through what's it like going from being you know, one of the most senior execs in one of the oldest banks in the world, being Barclays, to effectively your own business and a much smaller footprint, but a very important role you hold as the co-founder and leader? But the leadership style must be quite different in many ways. Yeah, it is. And interestingly, Pod, I always had heard this saying that the CEO's job is the loneliest job in the world. But I'd been CEO at, at different places. And my last job at Barclays, I was a CEO, but not of the whole organisation. And you always had a lot of infrastructure and, and support around you. But when you you're the kind of founder uh, CEO, it is a lonely job because when you have issues and as a startup, the issues are not the BAU issues that you have as an incumbent business where things can go wrong and the market changes. At the early stages, you know, some of those issues can be fatal and they're very difficult to share in great detail with your, even your direct reports. You want them to be, you know, not living in a false artificial world, but also not to, to, to scare them too much. So you kind of hold some of the things that, that I might have shared at Barclays with others, I kept them with me. Now you have a board, a very, very good board. The boards, particularly our board, are very keen to help. 
So when you kind of share some of these issues at times, board members are so wanting to help, you know, want a daily update and they share it with other board members. And so suddenly that issue, that's all you're working about. You've got a million things to do. So what you do is you, you learn from that. And instead, what you do is you wake up at 1am and you wake up at 2am and you wake up at 3am and it becomes you know, very engrossing. But you do need to share with your, your team. So there are some things that I have shared with the team, with my direct reports, 12 months after they happened to say, here's what was actually happening that I couldn't share with you. I didn't want to worry you. I thought we were okay. And they were are quite surprised. Now, in one way, you could say that's a breach of trust that they got it. But I think uh, also there's a degree of respect you get. Geez, I didn't realise that you were kind of bearing the full force of that. And so I have got my fill of the CEO being the loneliest job in the world. I wouldn't swap it for anything, but, but it certainly wasn't uh, a walk in the park. One of the models I've read about, uh, particularly in your hiring notices, you know, we find a way or we, we make one. Where does that emerge from? Because it's certainly very attractive when you read it for the first time. It's uh, nothing to do with me. Um, we have the most fabulous group of people. And I love it. it really is like a, a family. And let me not overstate, families don't have their wishes. They do. And that was for our technology team where what we are building is quite groundbreaking. So the rules haven't been written. And what the team say there is we have to find our own way. There isn't a textbook or a precedent or a case study. You need to find your way. And when you've got the most talented people, that for them is where they get their energy from. It's not about doing the same as what they could do in other businesses. It's about tackling the most difficult problems, the biggest opportunities and go uh, go for it. And, you know, the experience that, that they are getting and the way that, that we work together. And, and, and I have to say, it has been far harder than, than I thought. You know, I thought that there would be really two difficult points with a startup and one was getting a banking license because as a startup business, we were the first startup to get a banking license in almost 40 years in Australia and, and that particular bank said it apart from building societies and credit unions was the first in 70 years. And so it wasn't for the faint-hearted and it was difficult, but we got there. And then I knew that one day when you're up and running, you face the same business as usual problems as any. Things go wrong. They don't always go right. What was more difficult is when you are building a technology platform that there isn't a precedent to follow and a plan to follow, you just can't find the resources of people who have done it before. So you're hiring the best and building for something that is going to be scalable and having the patience and the support of investors to do that was difficult. And I have to say, there was many times where I was like, do we just become like a normal branchless bank and customers can join us directly as opposed to building this platform we call banking as a service where big corporates can offer bank accounts to their customers through their worlds. We stuck with the program and it absolutely is paying dividends now. But there were times where, particularly when COVID hit, we were about to uh, complete a, a large capital raise which was going to provide the equity, the capital we needed to launch the back end of, of last year. And we launched the, the capital raise in about February 2020. It was to close off at the end of, of March. If you'd asked me at the end of February how it was going, I would have told you I thought we'd be oversubscribed. And by the second week of March, where COVID really started to become an issue globally and some of our funds were coming from overseas, everyone wanted to keep their wallets in their pockets. So we had to reduce our costs dramatically. 
we had to do a rights issue to our existing shareholders at a low, much lower valuation than what we were raising capital with you know, in that earlier raise. And we weren't sure what the future was going to look like. And we had to put you know, the majority of our staff on uh, reduced work hours, significantly reduced work hours. Almost everyone took a pay cut of between 20 and 100%. We narrowed the scope of what we were going to launch the market. Initially, we had to change our first product, which was an unsecured personal loan product, not the right product to bring to market when you weren't sure how many people were going to have jobs and be able to afford to pay back loans. So we moved into mortgages, which are, which are safer, but that was like a, quite a big uh, pivot. And what the team were able to do with the reduced resources that we had was amazing. And our turnover was very, very high. And I talked to every person that uh, resigned pod and not one of them had anything but positive things to say. But when they were working one day a week and getting paid for one day a week and they had mortgages and families to look after and they were offered a job, they went with our blessing and, and I hope that some of them will come back one day. But that was ex- an extremely difficult period. Now, we've come out, you know, in such amazing shape compared to what theoretically we should have been able to and the self-belief that the team have built, the resilience. You know, we have been a bit of steel that went through the, the furnace and we either could have disintegrated on that journey or we could come out the other side a, a tougher grade of steel. And, and that's what's happened. It sounds like you were tackling one of those impossible problems that you seem to love early in your, your career. 2020 became just one long impossible problem. Well, this one was, it, it was added difficulty for a few reasons. Typically, when you're in a, an incumbent bank and things go wrong, it's painful. You know, you may have to do remediation programs. Um, in some cases, banks were fined and you need to pay fines and things that are embarrassing and they're, and they're difficult. When you're in a startup, it can be fatal. And when you're the one that's encouraged many people to move from where they work, to move country in a number of cases, when you have had investors, shareholders back you largely, they back the team, they back the strategy. Quite often, they're backing you as the founder. And that pressure is something else. And when you're going through COVID and there's a great deal of uncertainty, yeah, I've learned a lot of uh, skills myself and, and resilience being one of them. I certainly wouldn't ever want to go through that again. That wasn't part of the grand plan of founding Vault. I knew it would be difficult. I knew there would be Murphy's Law playing regularly, but not to the extent or not to the level of materiality that some of these issues could have been fatal. Good news is we, we get through them and, you know, we're going to do something very special and we are doing something very special. In well, I appreciate you sharing all of those insights and stories. And it sounds like that decision to stay out of the sun at age 13 has paid off in many, many ways and many unexpected ways. Before we bring this to an end, Steve, thinking back to all the experience that you've had now and all the wisdom that you've gained over that experience, what would you tell the 29-year-old version of yourself today based upon the wisdom you've gained? If I think about actually how things worked out, at 29, when I was working doing the corporate doctoring, I left St. George and then I was about to go back to St. George. In the first bit at St. George, maybe I had one direct report in my team, maybe. And I went back uh, the second time and I had over a thousand. And that was a learning. And I learned so much about myself, but also about people and how they're different. So that key learning was. Look, it is all about the people. 
It is about being true to yourself and living by values. Things that corporates sometimes pay lip service to, they mean well. When you go into Volt and you can see, you know, if we were doing this physically, Bob, our values are up on the wall. They're up on the walls of a lot of places. And when you see people acting in contrary to those values and exhibiting poor behaviours, and it's let slide. You might as well paint over those values because they they, they mean nothing. In Volt, they mean something, and that doesn't mean that it's someone does something wrong, you know, they're exited the next day, but we, we don't sweep anything under the carpet and people are spoken to. And quite often you will find that people weren't aware of, you know, maybe not living by the values or something was going on in their home life and they can self-correct. In some cases that hasn't been the case and people have been exited. But what it does mean that I can sit up and the rest of the team put hand on heart and say those things that are on the wall, the values and the behaviours that we live by are something that are genuine here at Vault and uh, and not just there for, for wallpaper. That comes back to the people. people. So 29, be true to yourself. I probably could have been a bit more politically savvy. I wasn't someone that uh, looked up to authority and uh, was a brown nose and the like. I would speak my mind. And in hindsight, I'm glad that I didn't change. And there were a few risky moments, even at Barclays, that sort of approach could have backfired and, you know, who knows where I would have ended up, but it didn't. And I'm glad I didn't. So as a 29-year-old, you're going to feel like an imposter for a period, stick through to what you know, you know, be a decent human being and and, uh, it's amazing what can happen. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's amazing what is happening. Steve, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for your insights and look forward to maybe having you back in a year or two to see how where this story keeps going to. I'd be delighted to do that, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider. And I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.